Matthew chapter 15. Starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 28. For those of you that are with us, um, and it's your first time, I again would like to extend um, another um, form of gratitude and appreciation. Thank you for being here. If there's anything at all that we can do to serve you, uh, we want to do that. We want you to feel uh, like family. And so our goal is that you would feel that. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and it reads like this. Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them. Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines, human commandments. Summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, Every plant that my father uh, didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, Explain this parable to us. Do you still lack understanding, he asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes through into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immorality, thefts, false testimony, slanders, These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus didn't say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. We'll explain uh, what that means. Yes, Lord, she said. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Let's pray. Um, We come to you as broken people that need to be made whole. And we're reminded, Father, that everybody that approaches you in humility, that believes what you say, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the glorious, we can approach you in brokenness and humility and leave in wholeness, God. We pray that that would take place with all of us today as we hear your word. Make us whole. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. Traditions. Traditions are things that uh, they're things that are often practiced, but rarely are they evaluated. If traditions 
were your favorite song, the what of the tradition would be the lead singer and the why would be the background singers. We all know the what, but we don't tend to know the whys. We all know the practices, but we don't know the purpose, unless your favorite song is Part-Time Wonder by Stevie, uh, or Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder. Then you know that Luther's in the background singing, uh, you know, do, 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 do. But that's another story for another day. Traditions come with gifts and curses. Here's the gift. Traditions save us time. We don't have to reinvent the wheel when we're getting ready to do something important. Imagine if there were no wedding traditions and everybody that was getting married had to, from scratch, create what they were going to do. Imagine if there were no traditions for what we did in the holidays, and everybody had to form that from scratch. It would take time. Traditions are good things in that they save us time and they help us to just kind of run on the the track that we should be on. Uh, But here's the curse. The curse of traditions can be when those things that save times, those perks, start to become rules. And the perks of traditions can start to become these prison walls that keep you and I trapped, practicing a bunch of things that we don't know why. And here's what makes that hard sometimes. Traditions need to be changed. That the continuance of them are harmful. Um... I think we see this no greater place than when it comes to our religion. Religious traditions. Religiosity. Things that were designed to help us solve the problem of us being far from God. If those things are left unchecked and we just default to all of those things, we can find ourselves in a place where we practice and we work hard and we try to obey and all our effort does more to harm our relationship with God than it does to help it. Uh, Candidly, this is why uh, I started to pastor and what particularly led me to feel called to pastor. It wasn't with primarily people that were on the outside of the church that I felt like didn't really understand what it meant to be in relationship with God. My passion came from seeing people that were inside of the church not know what it means to be in a relationship with God. People that would find themselves in a place like this, in the pews and the chairs that you're in, thinking to themselves, I need to change There are things about my life that I just can't change. They are tormenting me, and I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm doing all of the right things, but I'm not changing. Why? Because you may be putting all of your hope in traditions or things that are good, but things that will never actually change you. If you're here and you feel like, John, I'm trying, to hard, I'm trying hard to change. I'm putting in all the effort, but I don't feel like things are getting any better. I don't feel my life like my life is changing. Um, then I've got good news for you. And it starts here in Matthew chapter 15. Just a reminder, the gospel of Matthew, what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to paint a picture of Jesus for people that may already be familiar with him. He writes this because he says, or he thinks, that if you and I can see Jesus rightly for who he is, then it can change everything about us. So we find ourselves here in this section of Matthew where Jesus is really spending chapters 5 through 16 with the disciples trying to make sure that they really understand who he is. Matthew chapter 15, starting verse 1 and 2, it says this, look. Then Jesus was approached by 
Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Here's what takes place. Jesus is minding his own business. And what you have are these guys that are shown to be a representation or a a delegation of the religion of their day. And they approach Jesus with a concern. They look at him and they say, wait a minute, the way that we understand how people are made right with God, the people that you're leading, you're leading them to do something that's wrong. And I want you to hear this. Uh, Religion always starts out with the right concern. There is nothing more basic to our humanity than to understand and know. And every religion is going to have the same concern We are far from God. There's something that has torn the relationship that you and I have with God. And religion, all that that means, it's it's an attempt to bind that back. And what you have are these guys that look at the way that he lives. And what they're saying is, Jesus, we're concerned about how you live and how you teach people to live. Because you're not following the rules that were laid out. Here's the first danger of relying on religion or some system of obedience to make you right with God is that religion often perverts the very truth that it's trying to protect. Religion, in terms of just this man-made system of things that you have to do to be made right with God, it doesn't solve any old problems. It creates new ones. Look at what Christ says here in verse 3. While they said, hey, why don't you keep the tradition of the elders? In verse 3, he, he goes on and says this. Look, why do you break God's commandment because of your traditions? What he seems to lay out is what he's saying is, hey, you've elevated some system over what God actually meant. And so in your obedience, you're actually running farther from God. Religion often perverts the very truth that it's trying to protect. In verses 4 through 6, what he'll do is he'll give an example of how they pervert it, and we'll get to that later. But look here in verse 7, it says this. This is what he calls this group, hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands. Like I said, religion at its aim, it's just saying, all of us have some dirt. and It's saying this is the best way to clean it. Jesus is not correcting their concern, but the course of action that they took. And what he's saying is that, Your system is not creating a solution. It's actually creating bigger problems. What religion tends to do is it makes your relationship and standing with God wholly tied to your effort and how well you obey. And there's a lot more of us in here that would default to that. Do you tend to live as if the way God feels about you fluctuates with your performance? That argument that you had with your spouse this morning, that outburst of anger, that thing you indulged in this past week that you know that you shouldn't have. After you do that, what's the first thing that you do? Do you immediately start to think about all the things that you need to do, all the ways that you need to obey to cleanse yourself? If that's the first thought that comes to mind, then I want you to know running hard towards those things, uh, running hard doesn't matter if you're running in the wrong direction. And what Jesus is trying to tell this group, and the same thing that he's trying to tell to us, is that 
I think sometimes we can run in the wrong direction. Here's how he brings that up. He brings up this tradition that they had, and what he said is, you know, look here at verse, verse 4. For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me as a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. What he says or what he he brings up is this. Back in this day, they had this tradition or this vow. It was a thing called Corbin. And what it was was that somebody could make a promise that they would dedicate their stuff, the things that they have, to the Lord. It was for him. So it would be the same way that somebody would will their possessions to a charity after they die. The problem was what the Pharisees and rulers and teachers would teach at this time was that, listen, if you did this, then if your parents came up and they needed your help, uh, you weren't obligated to help them because of this commitment that you made to the Lord. And so what he brings up is, look, look, y'all are using your religiosity to find loopholes to do what you want. Michael Eric Dyson will say it like like this. Um, Most people come to church to love God instead of their neighbor. So here's what a religious tradition might look like in our day and age when we you can talk about something as simple as voting. And what you'll have are advocates on both sides saying, no, no, this is the Christian way to vote. This is what God is pleased with. And what you'll have are folks who say, no, the Christian way to vote is to vote for this group, this tradition that protects the life of the unborn. And I imagine that Christ would say, Why do you protect the life of the unborn and you disregard the very group of unborn that you're trying to protect once they are born? Or what he would say to a group that values human rights and equal rights, why do you fight for the equality of rights? But you don't live as if God says that there is an actual right way to live. Equal rights doesn't mean that everybody's equally right. So what Jesus is going to do is he's not going to fit in any box. He's going to step on both folks' toes. But what he's trying to show is, look, there's a way that we live. There's a way that uh, we uh, live. can start to define Christianity or religion or how to be made right with God and narrowly try to put it in a tradition. And Jesus is saying that any attempts to do that is going to fall radically short. Keeping the rules or the standard, whatever rules or standards that you've made, coming to church, giving yourself to external obedience, advocating for the vulnerable. All of those things are good things, but none of those things will save you. None of, none of those individual acts of obedience mends the relationship that we have with God. None of those things makes us clean, and Jesus shows that by pronouncing this word, listen, on these religious leaders who never missed a Sunday at church, never missed a quiet time or a prayer time. They didn't just read their Bible. They likely had Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized. Your Bible's highlighted until you get to Leviticus, and then the pages are clean. These people knew all of it. And Jesus is going to use them at this, as this backdrop. Here's why he says it's a problem. Hear this. When you and I give ourselves to obedience, 
And we think that obedience to God's standard or God's laws, that that's going to be the thing that makes us right with God. You know the feeling of obeying more and better, and you read your Bible, and you come to church, and you're at small group, and you give to the poor, and you know what that does on the inside of you. You do the right thing. It starts to make you feel good and more favored and more loved. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's, it's a danger because the only thing that that does is it blinds you to the awareness of the fact that things with you and God may still not be okay. Here's what I mean. And I want you to hear this clearly. A clear conscience is not the same thing as a clean heart. Proverbs 30, 12 says this, there is a generation that's pure in its own eyes, yet it's not washed of its filth. It's possible for you to wake up and to go to bed every morning with a clear conscience and be just as far from God as you were when your conscience was weighed down. You haven't solved the problem. You've just silenced the alarm. So it would, would, would be like this. It would be like you waking up in the middle of the night to a house fire. Smoke alarms in your house are going off. And you know that you don't have the power to put out that house fire. So you know what you do? You climb up on the chairs and you disconnect the smoke alarm and say, problem solved. No. You haven't fixed the problem. You've just silenced the alarm. And listen, you were in danger before, but now you're in more danger Because while you're reassuring, not just yourself, but everybody else in the house that they are okay, a fire is blazing that will destroy everything in sight and there will not be an alarm to alert them. That's what, you know, creating a standard of right in your head and keeping that standard and feeling proud of yourself because you've obeyed the way that you should, it doesn't solve the problem. It only silences the alarm. And Jesus starts off and says, look, this religious system, whatever standard of right or wrong that you've uh, placed, it doesn't solve the problem. It creates new ones. We're all far from God. Religion is man's best attempt to try to bind that back, but it falls short of the problem. Here's the reason why it falls short. And he's going to go on in verse 10. He says this, summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What he's saying is the problem is that religion tends to confuse the symptoms of the problem with the source of the problem. This past weekend, my niece had to go to the ER. She had a swollen abdomen. So her parents responsibly took her to the ER so that she could get an x-ray and find out what's wrong. Um, I came from a generation that if I came with a swollen abdomen, um, I had caretakers that would say things like, Rub some alcohol on it and sit down, right? Yeah, yeah. Did any of y'all have anybody that would uh, do that? They would look at the outside of it. They'd look at the outside. And they would say, oh, the symptom is that it's swollen. Let's do all that we can to make sure it's presentable. Not realizing that it's something deep inside that's messed up. What you see isn't the problem. What you see is the fruit of the problem. 
And so that's what Christ says. Christ says, look, 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 it's an output problem, not an input problem. Verse 12, then the disciples came up and told him, do you know the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? And Jesus responds with all the um, eloquence and sophistication of a, and? (laughs) They come and say, Jesus, they're mad. And he comes and tells them, look, Every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. He, he, he goes back to what he talked about, the wheat and the tares. Oh, you remember that story? That there's going to be these plants, some good and some bad. And what he's going to say is, leave them alone. God will take care of them later. But then he gives a word to all of us. Hear this. Who, who find ourselves In interaction with folks like these, they're blind guides. And if you follow them, they will lead you into a a pit. Religion focuses on the externals. It doesn't deal with the heart. So one of the quick ways to spot somebody like that, or to spot you if you're like that, is this. People that focus on the externals always spend time examining others and not themselves. They're always instructing other people on what they should do and how they should live and what was done wrong and how they can fix it. And they seldom spend time inspecting their own heart and their own motives. And Jesus is saying, yo, you come across folks like that, God will take care of them later. You, you run as far as you can now. And then he goes on and expands, and here's what he does. He gives a little biology and theology. Verse 16, uh, biology. Do you lack understanding? He asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Biology. Yo, you eat it. Your body's a pipeline, it's going to come out. It's not going to touch the heart. Your problem is not the externals. Theology. Let me find my place. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. What he's saying is, the real problem is what comes from inside. Do you know why you find it impossible to change? So hard to change or to really fix what's wrong? You try to fix it and it keeps on coming back up? is because you're trying to cure lung cancer with vapor rub. You're trying to cure an internal problem by all these external fixes. I just need a better budget. I need a accountability. I need a sight blocker. I need all of these things. And you put your hope in all of those things, not realizing what he's saying is this. Look. The problem is not your circumstances. The problem is yourself. And when I say yourself, hear this. I'm not advocating self-hate. I am not trying to take away from the dignity with which you have been created as an image bearer of God. I'm just testifying to the reality that what sin has done is it's defaced. It's distorted the goodness with which God had made you in. And what Jesus is trying to say here is, look, 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 look. The problem or the main problem is not just your circumstances or the environment that you're in or what comes outside or the externals that you can manipulate. Hear this. If you live or think that your circumstances are the biggest problem, do you know what you'll do? You'll spend all of your time trying to change them. And if you don't change, you'll spend the rest of your time blaming them. And 
what Jesus brings up here is like, your circumstances um, don't create sin. They don't create it. They give shape to the sin that's already inside of you. But your circumstances don't create sin at all. The problem is not filthy hands. The problem is a defiled heart. So here's what you'll find out or what you'll see. When he starts to list off all of these things, people with great spouses and terrible spouses commit adultery. People with lots of money and no money envy. People that have folks that hate them or surrounded by people that love them. Murder, and just on and on and on. And what you see is, hear this, there is not a circumstance that can protect you from anything in this list. And so if it's not circumstantial, then where does it really come from? There's nothing that you can change on the outside to prevent it. And there's nothing that you can blame and no one that you can blame when it takes place. You can't outrun the sin that's inside of you any more than a dog can outrun its tail. You can't cut folks off in 2019 and think that your 2020 is going to completely change as if they were to blame for the distance that you feel right now from the Lord. What is, as you think of the relationship that you have with God right now, and you think of the distance that you may feel, what do you feel like is the biggest contributing factor? What do you feel like is the big problem that if it were just to change, then you and God would be on good terms? If your answer is anything other than my own heart, then I think you're relying on something that won't fix the problem, it'll only contribute to it. Because if you don't get it, then you'll spend your whole time trying to get it. And if you do get it, then you'll start to rely on it as if that's the solution. It's like this. It would be like somebody that has peanut allergies going to a restaurant, eating and getting sick. And them saying, well, I did all the right things. I made sure what I ordered didn't have any nuts in it. I made sure the chef didn't prepare it with any nuts. Not realizing that what came out of the kitchen was cooked in the same peanut oil that everything else was. The most important thing is not how closely the chef follows the instruction. What the chef has to know is this. If I cook peanuts in this pan, even if I don't put any more nuts in it, this pan is going to contain residue, so everything that comes out is going to be tainted by those same peanuts. What Jesus is trying to say here is change your behavior, change your actions, try your hardest to live up to any standard Listen, but anything that comes out of that pan that's your heart is going to have the residue. And it's going to be harmful. And then do you know what Jesus does? After he kind of lays this big weight on this hard-hearted group of people, he leaves. Look, look, look here at the next verse. When Jesus left there, he withdrew and went to the area of Tyre and Sidon. So, so what you have is this, this big bomb that's been dropped. Jesus gives them the right diagnosis, but what you quickly find out is that you know, the right diagnosis uh, doesn't 
necessarily solve the problem. It just tells you what's really wrong. But here's what I love about Jesus. After he leaves there, do you know where he goes? To this place, Tyre, Sidon. Last time we heard about that place, Jesus was referring to how Gentile and pagan it was. So Jesus talks to these group of folks that think that they're insiders, and he says, uh, you think you're insiders, but you're really on the outside because your insides are really wrong, and, and you keep me on the outside, the only person that can fix them. And then what he does is he leaves, and he goes to this town that's outside. Verse 22, just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus goes and hear this. He goes and then there's this interaction that he has with this Canaanite woman. So it's not just a Gentile, it's a Canaanite. For those of you that know anything about your Bible, um, if Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Canaanites were gangs, then the Jews would be the bloods, of course. Um, The Canaanites would be the Crips. So what you find is that there is this constant tension in between Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Canaanites. This constant tension. Jesus, after he leaves this, the church-going, put-together, moral folks. He goes to a town outside, to an unclean town, and he's engaged by an unclean woman who has this unclean daughter. And she's crying out for Jesus to help her. And what you find is this, look. Jesus goes to a place that the religious leaders wouldn't go to do something that they can't do. She begs her to heal, and the story ends off with her being healed. Verse 23. Jesus didn't say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. This likely isn't just them saying, Jesus, can you just tell her to go? They're 12 strong men. men. She's one lady. If they were trying to get her to move, they could have done it. It was likely them saying, Jesus, man, just heal her. That's what you do. Like, just heal her so she'll go. And Jesus prolongs this encounter again to help them see what he is, who he's, or what he's like, who he is. 24, he says this, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this seems like he's saying, I was only sent to this group and not that group. Jesus came to save the whole world. God's plan from the start was that Israel would be a light to the nations. What Jesus is saying, what's broken in this world is sin, yes, but Jesus comes into the world to rightly set Israel in order, in order that they would fulfill their plans. Israel doesn't ever really quite get it and fulfill the plans of being God's light to the nations. So what Jesus does is show, and what Matthew's trying to show is that Jesus is the greater Israel, if Israel won't do it, Jesus will. The woman comes back. And look here, she's already crying. She's already begging. And, And then she comes and says this. She knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. i got to stop right there. You may read this and be like, 
Jesus is calling this lady a dog? That's racist. That, that's terrible. Here's what takes place here. As Jesus brings up this kind of meal picture of the kids with their bread and their dogs, um, Jesus is not being insulting towards her, calling her a dog, right? If he were, and she took that great offense to it, she wouldn't have replied in the way that she did. She would have been like, now, Jesus, I know that you're the son of God, but this is the last time that you're going to call me out my name. (laughs) She doesn't say that. She kind of takes this on, and there's this banter. Here's what took place. At mealtime, the food was prepared for the children. That's who, 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 uh, who it was for. The dogs were those that were unclean on the outside of the table trying to get scraps. And what he's saying is, I came here for a purpose. I came here to set these things right. That's my priority. That's my mission. And he kind of tests her a bit. And she comes back and she says, Jesus, I know it's your mission, but even if I am unclean, even if I am on the outside, one thing I know is that every dog that finds itself at a dinner table with kids, especially if it's my kids, gets full off of all the stuff that's dropped on, 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 uh, on the floor. She's expressing faith in showing, hear this, Jesus, even your leftovers are more than enough to change everything about my circumstance. And in her, this Gentile outsider, woman with an unclean daughter, what we see is the best picture of faith. And here's what faith is. Faith is this unwavering commitment in Jesus. And faith, hear this, lies at the intersection of desperation and hope. We tend to live as if desperation and hope are like a peach tree and spring street, right? You, you can be on one or you can be on the next one. If you're desperate, you can't be hopeful. If you're hopeful, you shouldn't be desperate. And that's not true. Desperation is like the corner of Peachtree and 14th. When you're at the intersection of it and they ask what street you're on, I'm kind of on both. Faith in Jesus says this. No, 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 no. I'm absolutely, completely desperate. There's no hope that I have. There's no amount of effort that I can do to clean what's on the inside. But I'm hopeful. Because I know that so long as I'm just in the presence of Jesus, even the scraps that he sends off are more than enough for me. Faith is us being at the intersection of desperation and hope because we realize that we can't depend on ourselves. There's nothing that you can do. Hear this. Your your standing with God is not about your effort or how hard that you work. What I love about this is Jesus is revealing his grace, hear this, to a Gentile who had no dietary laws to keep. So you've got this group who's judging right standing with God based on this law, and Jesus is going to a a people that has no law to show us that righteousness with God has never come by how well you keep the law. It comes through faith. It comes through those that don't spend their time performing. Ah, but they spend their time pleading and pleading and saying, Lord, I need you to change me. I need you to change what's on the inside. We don't come to Jesus entitled. We come to him in humility. And what you find is that everybody that comes in humility leaves whole. And here's what we see. Only Jesus 
cures what religion calls out but can never change. Matthew 15 is that only Jesus cures the things that religion can cause out. You go through the gospel of Matthew and what you find is the Pharisees are always coming on the scene, calling out folks. Yeah, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Why don't they do this? Why aren't y'all fasting? And Jesus comes on the scene and do you know what he spends his time doing? Casting out demons. Calming the waves, you look at the, the rest of this chapter, and what he does is he heals everybody that's sick, this Gentile crowd. And then what he does is he goes on and he feeds, hear this, 4,000 with the same bread that he gave to the Jews so that all these folks on the outside can look and say, wait a minute. What God has done for them, God will surely do for us that are on the outside. And we see Jesus crossing these boundaries. Showing that everybody that comes to him in humility is made whole. She receives this miracle because she accepts her marginal status. And she cries out that the Lord would save her. Because you know what you see in the Lord Jesus? Somebody who was like us, but unlike us. We see somebody who came, hear this, into the same circumstances that we find ourselves in, but what came out was different. Jesus was poor. I mean, the poorest of poor. I mean, from the time he came on the scene, right, like born in a manger poor. But he never envied. Jesus was oppressed. Put on a cross, murdered. Sometimes we get what makes oppression so hard is we're oppressed and powerless. And even being oppressed and powerless, we do our best to try to take revenge. Jesus was oppressed and powerful and didn't take revenge. Jesus lived life as a single man. And lust didn't come out. All the circumstances that you and I, all the sins that we would blame on what surrounds us, Jesus comes into the world in the same surroundings and produces something different. But do you know what he does? Hear this. Jesus goes to a cross, suffers a brutal death, dies not for his sin but for ours, raises from the dead. And when he raises from the dead, do you know what he does? He sends his spirit, the very thing that lived inside of him, the very person, his very person, in essence, the thing that lived inside of him, he sends it back to live inside of us. You and I who have a heart problem but realize nobody has ever done heart surgery on themselves. So what Jesus does is he fills us with his spirit so that when you and I are placed in the exact same conditions and circumstances that used to cause all types of foulness to come out, we're changed not by how hard we work, but how hard we plead for help. And that's the good news. And and I'm I'm literally done on time, right? There's no like... Big actions, there's no instruction, no big things that I want you to leave out with lest you confuse all of what I said here for some other list of traditions and stuff that I have you to do. Here's what I want you to know for everybody that's in here and wants that change that you've worked so hard that you couldn't get. You spend more time praying and pleading. 
than you do performing. And when you spend more time praying and pleading for God to change you than you do performing, you spend less time pretending. And when you spend less time pretending, do you know what you do? You spend more time being real. And the more time that you spend being real, do you know what that does? The more relatable that you are to everybody else who's pretending. And the more that you're at rest. And do you know what that does? It, it only starts with a few Then what you have is a group of people that are tired, that see folks rested. They come and say, what did you do to get that rest? I've been trying. And you say, yeah, well, I pleaded to a God that could change things that religion only calls out but can't change. And it creates this community. It creates this place where rested, weary, broken people come and find their way in, hear the good news of what Christ has done, plead that he would change them. He does it, fills them with his spirit, and they live differently. That's the good news of the gospel. That is available to everybody that lets go of thinking that how God feels about you is directly tied to your effort in obedience And you are reminded that how God feels about you is directly tied to Jesus's effort and success in obedience, the death that he died for you, the life that he lives for you, the spirit that he's provided for you. And it's out of that security that you and I actually find the rest that fuels the obedience and the changed life that we long for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to accept the full gift that you've provided to us in the gospel, would we be reminded of Jesus' great work in his life, how he lived, Father, in his death, how he died for us, that he traded places with us, in his resurrection, how he promises those of us that give ourselves completely and utterly to you, we lose absolutely nothing and we gain everything, things that we've longed for and worked for. Father, I pray that it would be, that that would be the truth. That would be the good news that causes us to live these lives of power and of grace, showing an amazing picture of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.